This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nafis Andrabi, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kamran Khan about his new book, Becoming a Citizen, Linguistic Trials and Negotiations in the UK. Kamran is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Universidad Oberta de Catalonia. Kamran, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. Kamran, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is, where you were born, where you went to school, uh, how you became interested in citizenship in the UK, and uh, how you landed in Catalonia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm from uh, Birmingham in England, which is the second uh, biggest city in England. And uh, my parents came over from Pakistan, so I'm from a you know, family of immigrants. <clears throat> and uh, even growing up, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of issues around immigration, uh, people applying for things, going to our house. And so I always had some sort of interest, you know, it's kind of like fairly detailed uh kind of knowledge about how, you know, belonging works on a kind of legal uh, basis. Um, from there, um, I went to university and did languages. And I went into English language teaching after my undergrad. And uh, Birmingham has a lot of migrant communities uh, over a period of time. And, um, you know, there's projections it may become the first city in Europe that would have an ethnic majority, for example, in the future. And so I used to teach uh, migrants and refugees. Uh, from there, I decided to do a PhD uh, in Birmingham, in my home city. And I did that between Birmingham and Melbourne in Australia as part of a scholarship. And it was around uh, the issue of uh, citizenship, uh, which was actually an idea from uh, my supervisor at the time, Professor Adrian Blackledge. And um, that kind of tied a lot of kind of things I had and uh, was interested in. Uh, from my kind of professional history of teaching migrants, my personal history of being within you know, a community, uh, within a kind of city that's famous for immigration. And so that's how it all kind of started. Uh, in terms of Catalonia, uh, so my family's here now, and um, I'm doing a postdoc. Uh, so obviously the book is about the British context, and um, I'm now working on the Catalan context of how the citizenship test is kind of experienced on an ex- everyday level. Awesome, thank you. Um, I don't. I didn't know very much about Birmingham, so that was interesting. What what kind of migrant groups are um, are in Birmingham predominantly right now? Uh, yeah, so um, I don't know if this is actually true, but this is something they used to say in my community. Uh, they say that the, I think one of the biggest Pakistani communities outside of Pakistan is in Birmingham. Oh my! Uh, so um, so there's that. But I think um, I mean historically there's been uh, Jewish communities coming over and um, kind of just before us was kind of the Irish community so love um, so I went to a school where most kids were children of immigrants so most of the white children in the school were actually Irish immigrants uh, and then there was kind of my generation which is more kind of uh, you know 
from the Commonwealth, so it has a kind of colonial link from the Caribbean, uh, from India, from Pakistan. And uh, since, you know, kind of newer generations of, you know, places like Somalia, Iran, uh, so a big Kurdish community. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's probably how it is. I mean, it's a lot more diverse. There's, there's kind of more migrant communities now uh, kind of uh, setting up. And uh, actually, one of the things uh, is um, there's a famous sociological book by John Rex. I think it's Race, Community and Conflict. Uh, and actually, that was based in Birmingham. So that kind of gives you a flavor for the city. Yeah, that actually sort of leads into something I wanted to, you know, your book is covering some really interesting history of British citizenship. And you touched on this a little bit that uh, folks are migrating in um, and there is a little bit, you know, the colonial link and um, how the Commonwealth is shaping some of these um, discourses around British citizenship. So I wondered if you wanted to share a little bit about that history that you cover in the beginning of your book. Yeah, so um, the kind of idea of a national citizenship uh, really kind of takes shape in 1981 with the British Nationality Act, uh, which is quite unusual given, you know, kind of long institutional histories that kind of there are in the UK. But uh, traditionally until then, um, it had been this kind of idea of being a Commonwealth subject. And um, kind of post-war, there was this kind of idea of trying to keep Commonwealth countries, you know, somehow together. And um, because obviously a lot of countries were becoming independent. And so they had this idea of, you know, Commonwealth's uh, subjects. But actually what it ended up doing was uh, there was kind of a lot more migration to the UK because there's subjecthood from, from the kind of metropole. And uh, over time, there would be these kind of different legislations which would make immigration uh, more restricted. And eventually they got to the point in 1981 where, you know, it was, national citizenship kind of became a way of cutting away from that kind of colonial link and, and focusing really on the national uh, subjecthood. So so it, um, so it started in 1981, and there was actually a kind of uh, language requirement within it, uh, but actually it was rarely used in reality. And it was um, kind of assumed you spoke English unless you showed you couldn't. That's what I found just from <coughs> uh, conversations I had. Um, and then 2001 is really the key point where it really starts picking up. And um, as I write, there, there were riots in three northern cities over the summer, and they were involved far-right extremists and mainly Asian communities. And the tension built up to the point where they had these kind of riots. So um, it kind of became this thing about, you know, why why don't they integrate? What, what you know, what's caused all of this? And so there's, there's this idea that these were kind of fractured communities. And so citizenship became kind of the focus point of political debate uh, as a way of kind of reuniting kind of this splintered community. And uh, obviously one, one way of doing that is, is a common language. And so they set about um, creating a, a citizenship test, uh, which actually I think the first one was in 2005. Uh, so that's kind of a brief history. But what's really interesting is that citizenship became a way of defining who belongs but actually, you know, it's really based on who doesn't belong as well. And I think that, you know, that kind of carries over into, uh, you know, the way the citizenship test is then uh, functioning within this kind of legislation. Yeah, this is, um, so my parents are also from Pakistan, uh, but they migrated over to the U.S. Uh, so 
and I, I just watched The Crown with them. So I basically know all of British history now. Okay. And, <laughs> and they, uh, I just remember this one line from it where I think the queen says, you know, we are all one big imperial family. Yeah. And I had a very different reaction to watching that show than my parents did. And I was like, you are such colonial subjects right now watching this, you know, show. And they were so immersed in it. And, um, and being second generation, I had a very different, different response. But so there's this shift from sort of seeing, seeing this broad imperial family to like, as the, uh, as the sort of imperial strength of Britain is decreasing, having to shift more to this sort of nationhood focus. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And before that, what was, you know, so how did you're saying, so, so language was sort of one aspect of citizenship did they evolve together in that region or have there been sort of other times when different aspects of citizenship are, are more or less salient or, you know, how did it become that language became such a critical point of, um, of the conversation around citizenship and nationhood and belonging? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been um, different ways really that um, immigration has kind of played out. Um, you know, there was kind of, you know, really racist discourse. I mean, as in explicitly racist, uh, using the N-word, for example, in, in the 60s as part of political campaigns. Um, but obviously what's different with kind of, you know, uh, the Commonwealth kind of immigration is uh, a lot of them would have, I mean, I guess it's the same for your family, would have had, um, you know, a decent knowledge of English before they came, right? Um, but I think what what they've been able to do since 2001 uh, is really make uh, language a kind of way of differentiating and uh, like you know some sort of, some sort of kind of symbolic aspect as well of showing you know you want to belong and also uh, let's not forget as well English is a really good way in terms of the language of looking at the way colonialism plays out so you know historically uh, you know English has been one of the things that's been used to expand out, uh, borders from the UK. Uh, through you know through the Commonwealth, uh, through the British Empire. So what's interesting here then is you know it was it was English you know of educating people in English in you know distant countries was a way of expanding the borders. But when it came to withdrawing from all of that and actually starting to make very explicit who belongs, English became a way of kind of uh, excluding as well and kind of uh, really kind of shutting the door almost. Uh, uh, you know, for certain people, um, obviously it doesn't. You know, you can still pass the test, but it's a pretty good indicator of the way in which uh, the kind of borders have kind of expanded and then contracted again. You know, right? Yeah, it's making me think of. I mean, I, I spent a couple of years living in Pakistan when I was in elementary school, and we've we've gone back and forth a lot. And um, I was always fascinated with people speaking English and British accents and trying to replicate the British accent. Uh, yeah. Which when I got older, I was like, okay, got it, got it, got it. Internalized colonialism. Yeah. And um, and the other is just, you know, I remember having this conversation with my dad who was saying, you know, overnight when the British, you know, changed, you know, took away basically Punjabi and these national languages um, that were spoken by the populace and made sort of English and Urdu these dominant languages that were spoken and um, the modes of education and the modes of communication, you know, they essentially rendered the country you know, illiterate, unless you're sort of speaking the language of the uh, the colonial power. And, you know, I think about that a lot now when there's, you know, in these different countries, when we're 
you know, seeing what, what language education is happening in, what, what languages are prioritized in the workforce, what languages are prioritized um, in schooling and higher education. And yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, and adding a kind of social linguistic perspective on that, uh, often uh, beliefs around languages, uh, you know, transfer to the populations of, of those speakers as well. Uh, so if there's prestige with certain languages, that's kind of passed over to that population as well. Um, so my point is is that uh, often the beliefs we have about speakers and non-speakers, you know, in, ter- in terms of what you know, the beliefs about their languages, is pretty much what we think of, of that group as a kind of people as well. Uh, so there is a kind of deep, you know, even within that, there's a kind of deeper resonance of kind of right. imposing English on that, yeah. So that's, you know, you started to talk a little bit about the citizenship tests. Um, I had two questions. One, you you mentioned 2001, and, you know, I, I come from this U.S. perspective, which is more where most of my training and most of my research has been. Uh, so I was curious about whether there was something, what was significant about sort of 2001 as this uh, temporal shifting point? Um, and I think about 2001 as this, you know, when 9-11 happened. And so I'm just wondering if there are any, you know, parallels or if there's any relationship there. Um, and then I'm also sort of wondering if you could just describe a little bit what these citizenship tests were like and if they were based off of anything historical or if they sort of emerged um, purely out of that moment. Yeah, so um, 2001, obviously most people straightway think about 9-11. Uh, the riots actually happened uh, in that kind of summer before that. And um, what's maybe... Uh, quite significant about this, and I think Anne-Marie Fortier uh, writes about this, is um, that this the people involved in the riots, uh, most of them I, would have been born in the UK. Uh, so it wasn't a case of kind of, uh, you know, migrant riots or anything like that. Uh, you know, people who'd been born ab- abroad and then, you know, uh, suffered from sort of racism or anything like that, although they may have as well. But what's significant is that they were born in uh, the UK. And I think the uh, expression that's kind of used, uh, if I remember correctly, in her book was, you know, these were kind of the sons of multiculturalism. So it's actually defined a kind of failure of the kind of model of pluralism as well. Um, So that's actually quite significant because also you can kind of draw a link then to the 2005 bombings in London that we had because they too, I think three of the four were born in the UK. So... There's this kind of a thing, you know, that they were born in the UK and, you know, so why why do they feel like this? And, um, you know, for example, that's a big difference from the US and 9-11 where the hijackers were all from outside of the US. So it's kind of, it's almost easier to rationalize that these people came from outside and they brought this kind of conflict and this atrocity to, to the country. So uh, that's one um, significant difference. Uh, so coming into the test itself, um, it's multiple choice uh, questions, and so they uh, they they're about different aspects of of British life. Um, so there's been three different versions of the test, and um, I mean I think for the first one they consulted, um, you know, like for example English teachers, ESOL teachers we call them English speakers of other languages, which is refers to adult migrant education in the UK. And, um, you know, there were kind of jokes as well. It's not only happening in, in England, but it's happening in Australia, for example. The, the kind of first set of questions, you know, there's uh, things that people think are maybe not necessary, they're kind of, you know, jovial. Um, and then some questions in the second version, it's more towards kind of um, helping people to um, with different services and accessing help. 
Uh, and then the third one, and this is very broad, it, you know, this, from what we've heard in a second, so I've done another project after the book where we interviewed, you know, over 150 people about uh, very similar things about citizenship. And what was coming across was that with the third one, um, there was a lot more kind of ideological stuff about art and um, the, the facts that people were feeling were kind of maybe a bit irrelevant to daily life or a bit more kind of given a very, you know, very distinct image of English and British life and things that, you know, supposedly you should know. So um, that's one of the things I think we have to keep in context is that the test can be different at different times. And, um, you know, it may change again in the future. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell. You need 18 out of 24 to pass. You can take them online as kind of practice as well, just to see how you fare. And, um, yeah, so you, it's, it's all in English. The preparation material is in English. Uh, so that's kind of more or less how it functions. Thank you. It reminds me a little bit of uh, conversations that are happening in the U.S. around standardized testing and specifically what you were mentioning about sort of shared culture and assumption of knowledge of, of various, you know, sort of art and music. And uh, I remember reading this example of, uh, you know, a word that was described as a yacht um, or, you know, the, the word choice was yacht. And this was a, a standardized test in the U.S. for uh, fourth graders and the sort of debate or question was what types of fourth graders have access to knowledge about yachts and is that really a, a word that we um, you know that we should be using in standardized testing to gauge what we are trying to you know what the, the mo is is it's about generalized knowledge or whatever but um, so I was just thinking about that um, so your book is an ethnographic study that follows the journey of W as they attempt to gain UK citizenship. So could you tell us a little bit about W? How did you meet them? And how did you decide that this was a story as you were starting this research? And, um, and you know, if you want to describe a little bit about what the process was of starting this book project or the research for this book project um, and how you sort of came into the, uh, the sort of narrative that you ended up choosing. Yeah, sure. So, um, as I said, originally the idea uh, was actually devised by my uh, supervisor at the time, which was was generally to to spend time with the class and see, you know, how they do citizenship classes at the time. And um, you know, there's different ways that can be implemented. It can be implemented within the, you know, a, a college. So, college for for us in this context means uh, kind of adult education, um, uh, not not necessarily university so um so the idea originally was to um to spend time with the class and um the one thing i should make clear here then uh, is that uh, it's in my neighborhood and this is where i've grown up that's where my family is and um it's mainly muslim area i don't know what the statistics are now off the top of my head but i mean it's it's very distinctly muslim and um you know for example the college i went to i, I you know, I knew people there. Uh, I was able to walk home, you know, because it was a short walk home. So, um, so it's very, very kind of familiar uh, surroundings. Uh, within that, then, um, the idea was always to, the class knew that I'd be coming in and maybe focus on uh, particular people and then their kind of journey. And I got to know W. And um, the first thing, I mean, he was really smart, very, uh, very sharp. Uh, and, the, and the whole class was was you know really nice the, the kind of typical atmosphere that I experienced as a teacher 
and um, we talked and he said, you know, I can show you, you know, things, you know, my, you know, my community and how things work. So, so that was quite interesting already because uh, he's Yemeni and um, we live in the same neighborhood. And um, so, you know, there was this whole world, uh, even though we, you know, shared religion, for example, you know, uh, you know, similar backgrounds, you know, both males and, uh, like I said, both Muslim. Um, but then he, you know, he showed me all these things, which I'd, I'd never really encountered before because, you know, I stick with mainly Pakistani people in my neighborhood and he sticks mainly with uh, uh, Yemis, which is not unusual. So, um, so that's how we got to know each other. And um, as time went on, I think what, what was becoming clear was actually the stuff going on outside the classroom was, was really interesting. And um, what working with him did was kind of bring everything for me together as a, from my teaching background and as just someone who you know has grown up in that next same neighborhood. It kind of by moving from the classroom to outside, I was able to kind of bring everything together. And so um, yeah, so it, so I think the the point where it started clicking for me that really uh, he might be better almost at kind of guiding me through this and. Uh, was when he described how he passed the test, which we can come on to shortly. But uh, when he described, you know, the, the actual thinking that went on, uh, you know, it's very di- different from what goes on in the classroom uh, in the way he handled it. And I thought at that point, um, he, you know, he, there's a really interesting journey here. And, um, and we got on well as well. And so we'd meet quite often. We did other things together. Um, for example, um, he took me to Friday prayers where he goes which is somewhere where I've never been. And so that was like a different experience for me. And, uh, you know, I got to do all these different things within different places uh, over a period of time. And, uh, yeah, at the end of it, he gets his citizenship, yeah. So that's kind of how it works. So it's, it's a bit of trust, really, uh, of having some flexibility about um, not being tied down to, to very dogmatically following what you want, but still having the spirit of what I was looking for at the beginning of, you know, how do people become citizens? Uh, but it became really clear that this was um, this was a really interesting way. It was it was giving me insights that I hadn't thought about before. So that's how it kind of shifted. Yeah. So how hard is it to pass this test, or how hard was it for W to pass this test, and how um, how did he prepare for it, both within the classroom and outside of the classroom? What was that journey like? A little bit. Yeah. So. Um, the test obviously depends on your level of education, uh, literacy as well, even in the first language uh, is quite a big issue. Um, so one of the things he told me was with a lot of the Yemeni people he knew, you know, they had maybe low levels of education in, in Yemen, for example. Uh, but uh, he was quite different. He was very much uh, oriented towards education. He wanted to go to university in the past. And um, I mean, he came to the UK in the end. Um, so. So really the best way to explain it is to put you in their shoes that you've got this quite dense preparation book um, which has got all these different facts and narratives about history and all these different aspects of British life. Um, so you've got this in English. And it, if you imagine, let's say, your your own level of English isn't that great and you've got to figure out a way of understanding this book and then going to the test and then dealing with that in English uh, through his multiple choice tests. So that's kind of the problem you have. Then there's other factors that he, um, for example, he works in the daytime uh, and he goes to classes in the evening. So already 
you know, this kind of reduce the amount of time that he has to prepare for the test. Uh, and then obviously, you know, you've got other things on top of that, you know, family life or, you know, your own personal things going on. So then the, the question is, how do you, how do you work around it? And uh, one of the things he did was, um, I mean, he, I mean, he worked really hard. He, um, he started going through it and translating a lot of it into Arabic and then kind of working with it bilingually between English and Arabic of like trying to make sense of this all and then um, practicing the questions and uh, eventually, you know, he got through and, I, and then he passed and he told me he was kind of the first one within his, you know, kind of immediate networks to, to get through it. So, um, you know, that takes a lot of work, you know, to sit and he was doing it by hand as well. I mean, he showed me the books, uh, you know, translating and then, you know, maybe highlighting really key words that he would need to, that were appearing in the questions, for example. And so that's how he got through it. And then what he did from then was um, he would help other people who maybe had uh, lower levels of English, maybe lower levels of education, even in Yemen, and help them to get through the test as well. So they would learn, like, the, uh, again, in Arabic. So they'd basically prepare for the British uh, citizenship test, which is in English, in Arabic almost. And so um, that has all implications as well for, um, you know, the kind of deeper aspects of it, which, again, we can come on to. Uh, but, yeah, so you know, only you know, figure out a way for himself to do it, but then he was helping other people to get through it as well. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much how it works, so almost entirely multilingually. Was that pretty common to see this sort of community-driven collective uh, studying and, um, you know, kind of what, what W ended up doing, which is essentially mentoring people or guiding people through studying for this test? Um, did people rely on other community members a lot? to get through that um in this study i mean i'm really focused on him i did i interview someone who um was an english teacher uh, and she would help people in the uh, within the kind of chinese community in birmingham and um it, again it's there's different factors that come into it you know um you know if you're used to taking tests even you know the whole atmosphere can be quite intimidating if you're not used to that kind of test and what's really different about these type of tests is um, you've got this kind of government face to it. It's not like going to you know university or school where it's you know you're with an educational setting and that's the kind of figure that you've got. This has got a very political element to it, um, more so than any other test. So I'll give you an example of what I mean as well uh, about that. David Cameron. Uh, I think in about 2011 uh, complained that history wasn't in the test, so it was in the book but not in the test. And then they changed the test to suit you know what he said. That's how political it can be, you know. And so this is a very political element, you know, you're dealing with the kind of authority and the, the weight of the government. Um, so um, I've done, as I said, I did another project afterwards uh, where we interviewed a lot more people. And um, yeah, it really depends. Um, what's really significant? Um, there was a period where there was two ways of becoming a citizen. You could take the classes where you just need to show a progression of, of this very specific course, or you could take the test. Uh, and uh, then in, I think, 2013, they, they took away the progression route, so you could only pass taking the test. And I think one of the things we found in, was in, in the second project was uh, what that was doing was actually isolating a lot of women in particular, particularly mothers, uh, because they needed help, but they no longer had that kind of access, that way of you know accessing the college to help them get through the test. So then they were either relying on themselves or trying to find someone within the community to help them. So, um, yeah, it's, 
it, it, yeah, it's definitely one way of, of getting through it, especially with so little help available now. And uh, one of the other things that happened as well was um, there was a point where there was a panorama, which is a documentary program on the BBC, which uncovered these kind of bogus colleges uh, that were just allowing people to pass, basically. So over a very short period of time, it's like closing even more colleges down. So, uh, you know, it's cutting, you know, it cuts off a lot, a lot of the support that's available. So you really are relying in the end on uh, either dealing with yourself or trying to find someone to help you. Yeah, that, that accessibility issue that you're bringing up in terms of mothers and, and you know, various family situations that individuals have and the lack of support structure seems seems really big. Um, how, how, how many chances do you have to take this test? Uh, you can take it as many times as you want um, every time you have to pay for it as well. So, um, yeah, so that, that's wow. one, one, one other aspect. How much does it cost? Uh, I'm not sure right now, um, uh, but I think it's around fifty pounds. Um, bef- before I, not, I'm not living in the UK now, so I've been quite up to date with it. But that gives you a ballpark figure for how much it's going to cost. Yeah. Wow, it's it's pretty. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, yeah, I have a, a lot of feelings about that. Um, I, yeah. So I guess I'm I'm curious about you started to talk a little bit about how the multilingual aspect of it and coming into studying for this test and taking this test translating it into Arabic then you know coming back into English um what you know what do you think are some of the implications of that or what yeah so uh you know one of the things that's really happening is that um the the kind of officially endorsed uh, materials are in English only and the test is in English only now, what, what's the kind of clue within all of this is that because the test is such a product of political discourses and policies, um, there's been this kind of um, idea that English is what we need to bring us together. And, um, you know, you need English to be a citizen. It's the most legitimate language you need to be a citizen. So when you have this kind of multilingual preparation, it shows us that in everyday life, that actually multilingualism has a role. English has its role as well, of course. Uh, but the way to be able to access English uh, and to you know to improve your English is not necessarily only done in English. It also shows us how communities work on the ground level uh, that they don't just function in English. That this kind of you know this kind of everyday kind of struggles uh, you know require uh, people uh, kind of support in uh, very multilingual ways, which are very uh, you know context specific. So it shows the reality of everyday life. It's actually quite different from the, you know, kind of very ideological, uh, you know, national community that you know only really functions in English. It shows that the reality is actually quite different from that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and even this, this, this test and structure that's meant to coalesce around the English language um, isn't. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about belonging and how belonging in folks you were talking to um, kind of relates to the citizenship test and the process of preparing for it 
but also just belonging more broadly? Sure. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the things it's supposed to do really is, is, is you know, make people feel like they belong, um, you know, they're part of the national community. So really the question then is, you know, is that something you can force out people, you know, through a test? Um, now, one of the things that comes across quite often within the, you know, the two projects that I've done on it is people often compare the test to passing the driving test, uh, you know, the theory test, I should say. So, um, you know, it's, so it's a very mechanical way people get through it, you know, people don't, it's not something, you know, people necessarily have a lot of pride about or, you know, instills this kind of pride uh, about, you know, people just tend to see it in very, uh, you know, instrumental ways that they, it's a test and they need to pass it because at the end of the day, it's an educational measure. Um, so it's very, di- very difficult then to make it inspire a very, you know, specific type of thing, just in the same way any test can do. But then what you have at the end is, is the citizenship ceremony, for example. And, um, you know, that's, you know, that, uh, that's supposed to uh, create this kind of sense of pride. And, uh, I observed a few ceremonies, uh, not just uh, the one that, you know, of W's, but I saw a few as kind of preparation. And I've been to quite a lot since as well. And, um, at that time, you know, you've got the kind of whole ambience of it all, you know, and at that point, people really uh, deal with it in very different ways. You know, some are really proud. Uh, some bring their families and wear their best clothes. For some, it's another day. Uh, for some, it's just, you know, an admin thing. Uh, we found in our second project that most people, uh, what they really want is the passport, you know, at the end of it. Uh, and that's not necessarily in some sort of, you know, you know, um, you know, ulterior motive it's that the passport is materiality that you're going to be here and you have something with your name that tells you you're british so um that's you know that's how it kind of the way the process kind of uh, works for all of that the belonging thing you know um one of the things particularly in language is that you know this brings you as an equal and you know now you can you know be as equal as everyone else and what we found in our second project is that, you know, there's this kind of feeling that you're, you know, when people question your English, you know, you're not really being believed to be from, believed to be, you know, a citizen like everyone else. And so we use this concept of believability. It's not in the book, but it's in other articles that we've written where, um, you know, that you're always having to prove something, you know. And I would argue that, you know, that continues even for the next generations, you know, these questions of, you know, where are you from? Where are you really from? No, but where are you really from? Uh, you know, so it can kind of manifest in other ways. So, um, yeah, I've, that's kind of how how it's supposed to try to create belonging and, you know, maybe the different ways that you may or may not. How do you see this this test evolving? I mean, how, how do you relate this back to what's happening and what has been happening in the last few years around Brexit and um, just the European Union and how you know, borders and national identity and sort of a broader collective identity have been shifting in that region. Um, And how does sort of, you know, how do we think about the evolving nature of the test, but also of migrants and belonging in those spaces? Yeah, so, um, you know, I kind of uh, talked earlier about how, um, you know, people kind of laughed a little about, you know, some of the questions that were in there. And actually, that's kind of uh, a misdirection in a way. Uh, One of the questions, uh, so Tim McNamara and Kerry Ryan talk about this, which is the idea of of justice, whether you should even have a test at all. And the problem with it uh, is that once once you start incorporating this, you know, test like this as a condition to stay, 
you've kind of got no, you know, it could be taken to its extreme. And that's the fundamental difficulty with the conditionality around citizenship in general. Uh, so Jacques Derrida, I, I used some of his work. Uh, he was, you know, born in Algeria, and you know, one day he had, you know, was a, you know, was a citizen, and another day he was, you know, they were, uh, you know, uh, Algerian Jews were expelled from the country, and the citizenship kind of disappeared. And it's that kind of knife edge that it creates, uh, where the moment you, you know, you have that kind of conditionality, then there's conditions for you to, you know, to have your citizenship taken away. So in the UK, we've had um, some. I don't know if you're aware of it, the Windrush. Uh, there was a generation that came over from the Caribbean, um, you know, very early on in this kind of post-war uh, wave. And, you know, there's many of those people who've lived here for so many years and recently in the last, you know, five, ten years had their citizenship taken away for, for different reasons. And so that's, you know, you're almost playing with fire, uh, you know, how far that can be taken. And, um, you know, I noticed, for example, in the U.S., before uh, Trump, uh, ended his kind of um, period in power. One of the things he tried to push through was this, you know, uh, a harder citizenship test. You know, you know, the whole point of that is that works within a very, very large kind of apparatus of separating, you know, people from their rights, or you know, or making it more difficult at least. So the moment you start having those conditions, it becomes really, really slippery and very problematic. And when language is a condition for that, then what, you, what it always always has the power to do is to exclude. You know, you can raise the levels, you can make it more difficult, you can add extra exams. So one of the things, for example, in the UK, we had the citizenship test in 2005. But then in 2011, we have, um, you know, this kind of spouse reunification or family reunification um, a requirement. So what that means is if, if you have a spouse and you're married, uh, for example, uh, and they're from outside of the EU, they have to take a test before they come into the country. And so, you know, so we've had, you know, we have like an externalization of borders into, you know, from UK into uh, other countries. So if you know that it's, it doesn't really apply to EU uh, citizens and it's for everyone out, you know, outside of the EU uh, in kind of non-English speaking countries where it's going to be more onerous, well, it becomes very racialized in that case because that's mainly Asia, it's mainly uh, South America, for example, Africa. Uh, so it's a very uh, you know, dangerous path to take, um, and uh, you know now, for example, in Australia, uh, they're having uh, you know similar family migrant um, requirements that they're talking about bringing in. So it's a very tricky path, is my point. Uh, it's it's you know it's, it becomes a kind of um, <clears throat> it could be weaponized into you know, separating people from each other, or making you know access to rights more onerous, or you know or taking them away even. So. Um, in terms of Brexit, it's where you know nobody really knows where we're going with Brexit, uh, how it's going to turn out. But again, I, what you're seeing with EU citizens who are in the UK is that now they're being assimilated in the kind of you know more into that kind of non-desirable migrant kind of category, uh, which was maybe protected to some extent by being in the European Union with free movement. So it remains to be seen. But as I said, you know once once you kind of you know, Derrida said, you know, there's a thin line between belonging and discrimination. And so that's where, where that kind of, you know, raises edge between those two things. So that, that's kind of some of the debates that are going on here. And actually not only, the, sorry, I should say not only the UK, but we're seeing more citizenship tests being introduced in other countries as well in Europe. Yeah, I'm sort of, you know, one thing I'm thinking about, and this is a little bit of a half-baked thought, but is 
you know, so so you mentioned earlier that having the citizenship test isn't necessarily increasing, you know, it may be doing something for individual level feelings of belongingness to some extent, but but the marginalization or otherization of those or othering of those groups who've taken the test, regardless of whether they pass or not, you know, still persists to some extent. And you're saying it persists to some extent across generations, right? So even having that citizenship doesn't necessarily protect you from that othering. And so, you know, in terms of both these assimilationist perspectives and just who benefits from the inclusion of these tests, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just, I'm wondering if you have sort of thoughts on, you know, who does, who are these tests serving and what types of um, values or ideologies are they maintaining or reifying? Yeah, so in terms of ideologies, what it really does is it, it kind of sediments the kind of one nation, one language kind of idea, uh, which is obviously, you know, very central to a lot of nation building, uh, you know, historically. So it really kind of, you know, puts that into, you know, into play. Uh, one of the things with citizenship tests as well, uh, in terms of the content, is it's one of the, it's kind of a weird genre because um, on the one hand, it's, you know, it has all these useful things about, you know, accessing services. It's one of the, a few places where you really get to see a, a kind of national narrative in one place, in one book, uh, being played out, what the nation really thinks about itself. Um, so it kind of helps kind of perpetuate some of, you know, some of the, you know, images a country has of itself. Um, I think what it does as well, I mean, it's one of these things, you know, it promises equality, but kind of reifies, you know, who belongs and who doesn't in order to achieve that quality, equality. Um in terms of uh, benefits, um, you know, it's mainly ideological, mainly political, um, because it's it's you know makes very clear what the nation stands for, um, how you know how you can belong, which is why the kind of idea of becoming was central to the book. You know, you know, how do you become a part of the country? And um, so I, I split it up into different dimensions to this. So you've got kind of a technical level to this, which is what you're saying is that there's a very specific level that you need to have your English at to be, you know, to be a citizen. Um, so that's one thing, you know. So then that opens up questions, you know, if your level's below, uh, can you really be a part of the country? Well, obviously, we know they can, but, uh, you know, that's where it's kind of insinuating. So there's the technical level. There's the ideological level, which is, you know, as what I've just explained. But then there's this kind of symbolic level as well that governments and, you know, maybe people uh, through because of the political discourses, um, they want to see that you're trying to be a part of the country, that you're willing to go through this process, uh, the, the, that you're willing to um, spend quite high sums of money to do so. That it shows that you know, I want to be a part of this country. And, you know, for example, you mentioned about, uh, sorry, just repeating about generations. But also you have to remember as well, uh, in our kind of second project, is that sometimes you can have varied citizenship statuses within the same family even. And so that has implications for the you know family, you know, even when they're traveling, you know, taking up different queues and then trying to meet up at the end, um, you know, different levels of you know precarity in terms of you know what's going to happen in the future. So, um, so there's different levels it plays out on. Uh, one thing I should mention as well is that um, these things, you know, every time you pay, uh, buy a book, take the test, uh, in, uh, apply for citizenship, generates money, you know. So there's kind of different levels of who gains from all of this what they gain yeah thank you for that i yeah i'm thinking a little bit about those different generational 
like different statuses within the same family. Um, we see that a lot here in the U.S. as well. And you know, it'd be interesting to think about families where different people are or aren't passing, or families where their whole family is fixated on on passing these tests. And yeah, I don't know, just another obstacle into um, into having you know sort of access into communities and access into belonging. And, yeah. Um, just one point on that. Yeah. Uh, when, when we did our kind of uh, sec- the second project, you know, the larger scale project, we had we had this very specific question, which was, you know, uh, a lot of the people have some what we have uh, indefinitely to remain, which is maybe what you would consider to be permanent residency in other countries, uh, but it's not being a citizen. It just means you can stay in the country for the rest of your life. So we had this very specific question about why would you, you know, if you know you can stay in the country, why would you then go on to become a citizen? And one of the most common answers was in case something happens in the future, in case the price goes up, in case they change the laws, um, I want to get my citizenship now in my hands already. So there's this kind of, you know, forecasting that goes on as well, trying to mitigate, you know, potential kind of threats and uh, with the kind of rise of, you know, um, very kind of uh, xenophobic and racist discourses, you know, the, you can see why they would do that, you know. Right, the security of the citizenship. But then as you've pointed out, right, there's this precarity of the citizenship too where individuals could be stripped of it at any time. Yeah, d- depending, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that applies to certain groups, but I guess in the end the citizenship is about as safe as you can get, right? So, um, yeah, that's, it's it's difficult, you know. Yeah, no, this has been this has been really interesting. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about what the, your, you decided this larger project and then also what it's been like to try to expand this project to the Spanish context, yes. which has a pretty different colonial history. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, we did this uh, second project at the University of Leicester where, so I focused very much on um, this very tight, um, you know, case study, basically ethnographic case study in in this context with the book uh, then we moved on to uh, looking at um, two different cities london and leicester uh, leicester is quite similar to birmingham in terms of very multicultural you know history of immigration and obviously london is, is quite cosmopolitan and then we spread that across um you know um about as i said over 150 people interviewed in the end and um just seeing what some of the themes that came up were um and the reports are available online for that but uh, it gives you know an idea to see you know different gender uh, with the way gender plays a role. Um, we focused also within the second uh, study. Uh, we did half of it, more or less, um, you know, very generally, and then we focused on very specific communities with that, based on you know some metrics we used within the the first half. So we focused, I think, in um, in London on the Chinese community, Latin American, which is growing really fast, and. Um, Bangladeshi, and then in Leicester we focused on uh, the Polish and Indian community. Indians kind of like the big uh, community within Leicester, so you know they all had their kind of very specific, you know, issues going on. And um, and now uh, I'm in Spain, um, which has a very different context. So uh, in Spain, there's um, the, obviously the main language is in Spanish, but then you've got these uh, autonomous regions that have their own languages like Basque. Galician and where I live in Catalonia, which is Catalan. And what's unusual about uh, the Spanish context is that the test is really new, but um, it can only be taken in Spanish, even though there's more than one language uh, available. And so it gives a very clear you know, idea of what, what a citizen should be you know, doing. 
Now, where I live, most people speak Catalan. Um, if you want to work, and most, so obviously I'm part of the kind of immigrant area here because I, I am one myself. Um, most people use Catalan in their daily life, but when it comes to the test, it's only in Spanish. So I'm kind of examining kind of the politics around all of that and what it means for, you know, people, um, you know, some people, for example, arrived in, Spain, uh, in Catalonia, kind of youngish age and done their education in Catalan. Um, and what it means for them, for example, where they don't really need Spanish, uh, but they kind of have to go through the Spanish test itself. So uh, again, you know, again, it perpetuates a lot of self-images about Spain. Um, one of the interesting things, even when you go through the material, for example, is the history section starts in 1492, uh, which is obviously the year of, uh, you know, the Reconquista. And it, um, it starts, the history section starts with kind of the development of the Spanish language. So it kind of gives a very clear, you know, global image of Spain and, uh, and also within the national context that, you know, Spain and kind of, you know, Christianity and Spanish are, are really, really central to it. Wow. Okay. So I have a couple of questions. First, I would love to hear some of the, um, some of the differences or, or themes that came up across the, the, the Chinese, Bangladeshi, uh, Latin American groups and Polish Indian, um, you know, because those are, I'm just curious about what some of the bigger differences or, or, or similarities were across those, those groups. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the kind of main differences, uh, uh, just as a kind of central uh, starting point, was kind of uh, how long they'd been established. So the Indian and Chinese, for example, were fairly well established, uh, and they would have their own issues. So in India, was, uh, the Indian community was a lot of things about um, uh, spousal unification, for example, was one, you know, bringing the, you know, getting the family unit together. Um uh, with the Chinese, you know, it was one, this kind of feeling that quite often they consider very, you know, silent community, you know, not really spoken about. Um, and, you know, they also told us about the kind of uh, racism that they'd experienced. Um, uh, Bangladeshi as well. I remember the Bangladeshi was very uh, very politically mobile. You know, they mobilized uh, in, in, in really effective ways uh, to establish, uh, you know, the kind of stronghold within uh, in London. Uh, the one I found really most fascinating was actually the Latin American uh, communities. And obviously within that, it's obviously, uh, you know, lots of, you know, people from different countries. That was kind of the way they had to kind of wrap it up. But also because um, there's been this challenge in London, uh, at the time anyway, before, w was to be considered an ethnic minority within uh, the different, um, you know, in terms of like equal opportunities, for example, and these different things. So uh, they were really fighting for that at the time. So, um, um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see this kind of really um, kind of dynamic community growing. It was so diverse. And kind of finding its way in, uh, in in London. So I think most of the people I actually spoke to were from Colombia, and um, you know, it's it's. I didn't realize, for example, even how how much it was growing. So it's it's uh, it, was, it was really fascinating in that respect. And um, yeah, that's that some of the things that came up. Uh, um, the language was obviously quite a big thing, uh, and there was this kind of real big distinction between uh, kind of long established members, you know, really uh, didn't particularly with women. Uh, really uh, finding ways to help each other. Um, so that, that was kind of very generally, we've got a report on it that goes into it in more detail, but uh, that gives you an idea of some of the dynamics. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense, right? That the longer you've been there, the more community support you have, or the more the community knows what you need to do in order to um, study for the test and pass the test and, and you can then 
support one another in order to get that access. So, um, oh, I had another question, which was, so you're in Catalonia. So are your, what language are your children's learning? Yeah. Yeah. So they speak mainly in Catalan. Um, The school is, is almost entirely in Catalan. And uh, so they speak in Catalan. Um, but I speak in English with them. And um, so I've taken on the role of the immigrant dad who doesn't really, you know, embarrasses my children by not speaking uh, their language well. They speak to speak in front of their uh, friends from school. And so um, so I get to experience kind of, you know, what my parents must have gone through as well. So, um, but yeah, obviously in England. So, yeah, so it's their, their main languages. They, they, you know, I think they speak, they mix it up with Spanish and they can understand it fine. Uh, but particularly where we live as well, um, there's a very high concentration of Catalan speakers. So it's, for example, where we live, it has double the percentage of Catalan speakers compared to Barcelona, uh, you know, because Barcelona is quite cosmopolitan. And, and, you know, there's a lot more kind of international communities there. So so we're, we're in kind of hardcore Catalonia, you know. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's how it kind of plays out. Is the citizenship test in... Uh, Spain is it similar to the test in the UK, or how does it differ? Yeah, pretty similar. Uh, that you know, it's a multiple choice. I think the the level is slightly lower than the UK. Um, but what they have here is um, a separate test about language. So actually, in reality, um, I should have made it clear that the the test actually in England, for example, tests two things. It tests your knowledge of life in the UK, and it tests your language at this you know this level, wherever it's going to be. So um, in England, they put those two things that it's measuring into one test. And in, in Spain, they kind of split it up almost into two. So you have a multiple choice uh, test about um, knowledge and culture and things like that. And then you've got a separate kind of writing, reading, speaking, listening uh, test in Spanish. So that actually has its own issues as well, because um, it's basically like a generic language test. And one of the issues that comes up when you do that was that uh, I'm not saying necessarily this one, but just, just as an example, that the test developers ne- didn't necessarily design it with that context in mind for immigrants. It may have been just for international students, for example. I think that test is kind of, um, it's called the DELE, um, which is kind of widely used in the Spanish-speaking world. Um, so there's kind of issues about that. Um, you know, I think Glenn Fulcher talks about how it's kind of test misuse because it's, it wasn't designed for immigrants in mind, and now you're using it for, you know, quite quite significant things in someone's life. Um, so that's basically, you know, because those are some of the kind of issues that I'm trying to look into at the moment. So is, has using the test in Spain, um, I, I can't remember when you said that it started, but before and after, has there been a notable difference in what the... Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, is it is it purely symbolic, or are they is the exclusion rates of migrants who aren't getting access to citizenship is that increasing, or um, what are some of the consequences of enacting this test? Yeah, I did try to get some of the figures, and uh, they weren't forthcoming about, uh, for example, failure rates and things like that. Um, the test is still fairly new. I think um, in twenty sixteen it started, so you know, it takes a while for people to apply and go through the whole process. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment to find out. So it's really only kind of three or four, you know, four years or so. Um, and then you've obviously got other things that you need to satisfy, like the res- you know, how long you've been living there. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment to kind of build a picture upon that. 
yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And it'd be, you know, I mean, <laughs> I wonder why they're not so forthcoming with that, with that data, but I'd be curious to see, uh, you know, what really has changed as a result of having this test, especially if you're allowed to take it as many times as you want. And it really just is a financial penalty and sort of a symbolic time commitment. Um, you know, what, what is it really accomplishing in terms of, you know, whose, whose needs is it satisfying? Well, we actually wrote an article um, just to kind of build up when it first came up. It came out. Um, we wrote an article about this uh, with uh, Iker Edosia and Alberto Busos. I should mention them because because we wrote it together. But um, one of the things that came up in the kind of data was actually generated a lot of money. Um, now we can't say it's solely down to the um, citizenship test, but it's significant that you know the kind of year it starts getting you know coming in that the Kind of uh, profits of the administrators goes up, you know, quite substantially, and so you've got this kind of uh, thing where, um, you know, you can't avoid the test. You know, if you want to become citizen, you, you can't avoid it. So it's it's very you know, it's an obligation almost, and so there's no other way through it almost. So um, so we'll see how much you know when. I don't know if they'll release any more figures on that, but yeah, there is the financial part, and then as I said, you know, um, the extreme right here is is. Is I think building a lot of momentum here, and um, you know, you, you don't want to see what would happen if it, if a test like this you know, gets to be in their hands, you know. Um, so that's always you know what I said before about the danger of this kind of conditionality and these kind of obstacles that they created. You know, if, if you take it to its extreme, you know how how bad can it get? So um, yeah, I mean we'll see what happens politically here, but um, for sure, Vox, which is the far right party. Is definitely making in- inroads. There's no doubt about that, you know. So um, it also shows, as I said before, that the kind of tight links between politics and uh, tests. I think. It's, I think it's. I can't think. I, I always ask when I go to conferences and things. You know, can you think of another test where you know the prime minister can you know can want something to be in it and it will be in there? You know. Right. And so um, I've never. I still can't think of anything else. But as I said, you know, it's. Um, it's pretty uncomfortable times, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just reminds me of, I would la- in the most recent census, there was a conversation around um, Trump and his administration wanting to have questions about uh, citizenship status. Um, and that was a big, you know, debate, but ultimately they weren't able to, they weren't able to pass that or do that or collect that data. But it was uh, a moment of, you know, a political figure wanting to, you know, include certain things in this large demographic, um, you know, I mean, I know the census is a little bit, is much different than citizenship tests, but it was, that was also a big conversation over here. But, but, but there is a point there about, um, you know, the first time they knock on the door, you know, you might get away with it the second time. When they keep knocking at the door with that kind of power, you know, you wonder whether eventually the door is going to break, you know? Oh, and uh, I think we're waiting for our door to break exactly. here. And, and, and that's always the point with, you know, when, things like this become part of like a wider political apparatus is, you know, the first time you, even, you you may hear about it, it might sound, you know, completely ludicrous, but the more it gets normalized, you know, people start accepting it and it doesn't seem as you know, far-fetched anymore. So I know in Denmark, they're thinking about, um, I, I, I don't know how serious they are, um, but they were thinking about uh, having some sort of test there and it, you know, it looked pretty, pretty bleak. Some of the things that they, they were kind of talking about. Um, I mean, I'd have to check it again, but I mean, yeah, it's, like I said, you know, the first time it always looks a bit strange, you know, when you've never had a test and you want to introduce one. But 
there comes a point where people start sometimes uh, thinking, ah, well, all I have to do is do a test and, you know, you don't know where it's going to lead you. So, Right. I mean, in some ways, it just makes me wonder if, if the ultimate point really is to, you know, push communities increasingly towards a more ethno-nationalist state where we don't have one, you know, or, or you know, is that the direction that all of these um, nation states are are moving towards, you know, that we have this, you know, extended experiment where we, uh, you know, tried to have other processes in place. And and now is there, are we seeing this bigger shift towards and, and is, are these citizenship tests one step towards, you know, really defining a more clear ethno-nationalist state? So that's something I, I don't know, I wonder about. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, within, in the UK context, um, the test, you know, it kind of comes out of this, 2001 from you know 2001 2005 where there's this kind of repeated uh, attempt to show that multiculturalism has failed and you know you can kind of draw a line between that and then the point we get to with brexit and everything where we are now you know where um you know they don't even want to be a part of europe um you know it becomes very you know very um a very insular even more insular you know and um you know it's it's a pretty it's a pretty sensitive barometer to see you know the kind of national temperature you know at the time so um yeah i mean it kind of all the kind of pieces of you know fit eventually you know when you look at the wider picture yeah yeah i'm you know i guess we'll have to have to wait and see and, and come back together in a few years to see what yeah, <laughs> where right. these yeah. tests have have gone to and whether yeah. um you know whether we're seeing them sort of in in every space and how how they're they're becoming progressively more exclusionary yeah yeah. Oh, but just one point there as well yeah. is um, just uh, it's one of the things we found as well in the in the second project is is that it's not only the test uh, and then it's not only the externalization, for example, the the border kind of the kind of um, spouse reunification, uh, but then you know you get all these kind of micro trials with all, all of that. So one of the examples in the book, for example, is within the ceremony where they uh, it depends on the ceremony you go to, but you know uh, there's a possibility where they can they can watch your lips to make sure you're saying the oath properly mm-hmm. and um so yeah i mean you've got the the test but then you got all these kind of micro you know these continual kind of assessments and anytime you've got an assessment there's always a threat you're not going to make it and um you know that's that's the way testing works right uh so when you kind of implement that even into you know the very fine details of someone's life uh even though most people are going to get through you know but it's the threat you know it's always going to be there yeah and i think <laughs> I sort of sarcastically wanted to say that's just what immigrant populations need is they need one more daily stressor in their lives to yeah, make sure that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, um, comrade, this has been such a lovely conversation and I'm really glad I got to read this book and I'm really glad I got to talk to you about, uh, you know, these citizenship tests, which I'm now going to go look up Denmark's yeah, yeah, test yeah. and think, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking, looking forward to sort of seeing how this continues and reading about your project in, in Spain as it develops. So thank you for coming on here and joining us today and, and telling us about becoming a citizen. Thanks for having me on.